what is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that you're prone to worry about? As you look to the future, what uncertainties tend to get inside of you and play games with your emotions? What, what is it that the thought of which would just bring on the worst emotions and would just make you feel like life wasn't worth living? What, what do you worry about? Perhaps you're a student and you worry about your grades. Will I do well enough? Will I be able to move forward? What will my parents think? Will they approve of me? Will they be mad at me? Will this affect my future schooling plans? Will this affect my career choice? Perhaps you worry about death. What's really going to happen when I die? What will it be like? Will I know what's happening to me? Will I continue consciousness? Is it all really true? And what will happen to those I leave behind? Who will be there to take care of me? Maybe you worry about what other people think about you, how they see you. They think you're awkward, selfish, foolish, dumb. Maybe you worry about being alone for the rest of your life. Will I be alone forever? Will I ever meet someone who will love me for my sake? What if I never meet that special someone? Perhaps you worry about your health. That feeling you get when you've been waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks for very important lab results and you've almost pushed it out of your mind, you've almost forgot it when your cell phone rings and you look down and it's your doctor's office and that feeling you get in your stomach right then and right there as your brain starts frantically worrying about what they're going to tell you. Perhaps there are really bad things that that do worry us. We're in a fallen world. You know, when you hear gunshots outside your home and they seem really close and you hear people yelling and shouting and more gunshots, always eight at a time, pop, 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 pop. And you wonder when somebody's going to start pounding at your door. You know, you're wondering about your future, your safety, your family's safety in the city. Think of the worries of new parents when they take their first child home and there's nobody there to help them out and they're not sure what to do or whether they're doing it right. They, they worry, will, will my baby nurse properly? What if I can't hear her cry? What if I don't know what she needs? What if there's something wrong with her and I don't know about it? What if I accidentally do something that hurts her? What if I mess up her life and she's going to need decades of counseling? It's happened before. We worry. We worry about the workplace. What if I fail at a project? What if I fail at an assignment? What if I can't do the job? What if I uh, padded my resume and I'm really not qualified to do the job that I just got? How secure is your job? Is it as secure as you think it is? And what if you don't have enough money? If you're unable to pay your bills, if you won't have enough stored up for retirement? What if you crunch the numbers and your head starts to rush and your palms start to sweat? That's, that's when you're worrying. We can be tempted to worry about anything, about everything, playing over in our minds the worst case scenarios, becoming crippled by the fear that what happened in the past could happen again, and being imprisoned by a pull to fixate on what the future might hold. Jesus knows worry is an enemy that can eat us alive. It devours us from the inside out, and he wants better for you. Jesus, in the passage we're going to be looking at, had just been talking about 
money and a guy who built barns and then God said, you fool, this night your life will be demanded from you. And right after that, Jesus turned to his followers and said, therefore, in Matthew's version of the account, Jesus notes the impossibility of serving both God and money. And then we get to Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't labor, they don't spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. What do we see here? First, we see that your worries, the things you worry about, show your real ambition in life. Uh, Jesus zeroes in on, on what he sees as the real hard issue behind worries. He says, the pagan world runs after all things. Their ambition is to have food, wine, and, 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 and the ease of life and wealth. And he's saying, no, instead I want you to serve God's kingdom, and he'll take care of all these other things. I distinguish here between anxiety and worry. We can sometimes use anxiety as a synonym for worry, uh, but, but anxiety can also mean uh, a lot of things that are involuntary. Uh, you know, there are plenty of us in this room that have had anxiety disorders, claustrophobia, panic attacks, PTSD. PTSD is not caused by worrying, and its main manifestations are not worrying. It's caused by experiencing extreme trauma that has rewired your central nervous system so that you are in a continual state of high alert that you can't just turn off. It's, it's not voluntary. We're not talking about that. When Jesus is talking about worrying, he's talking about what in a different generation was called fretting fixating on our problems, going over in our minds, dwelling on the, the troubles that are before us, uh, allowing your mind to, to, to fixate in the unease. Jesus zooms in on what he sees as the real hard issue behind, behind worrying. Uh, assuming there's no medical condition involved, you're worrying over your vacation plans, or you're worrying over your car, you're worrying over your meals or about what people think about you, about being the center of attention or not being the center of attention, about failing work or failing relationships or failing life. 
Uh, you worry that you might look like an idiot if you have to stand up and talk in front of people. You worry about dropping the ball. You worry about your weight. You worry about your appearance. You worry about your physique. You worry about getting older. You worry about getting stuck in traffic and being late and getting rejected by somebody you admire. You worry about being humiliated. You worry about losing your health, your career, and especially finances and money. And Jesus says, do not worry about your life, about what you'll eat, or about your body and what you'll wear. Because life is more than food and the body more than clothes. What is it he's trying to get at that preoccupies your heart? That's, that's how, how worry is. is it, it shows you what your, your real desire is in life. Is there nothing bigger in life than what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Your worries are diagnostics because they show you your real ambition. Jesus is saying, I see your worry. I get your worry. And the, the evil in the world is real. And none of you are going to get out of this alive. You know, your only hope is that I'm telling the truth and I'm paving a way for you to the Father. There are things to worry about. They're real. But as counterintuitive as it may seem, Jesus is saying, I want you to seek my kingdom. Make that your ambition in life. And I'll take care of all the stuff you're worried about. See, we're creatures of ambition by nature. Uh, you know, it's the, uh, we're, we were made in God's image to be godlike in certain ways. We were given the cultural mandate to, to rule, to be literally like kings and queens over the creation at the beginning. Uh, God's saying, you're going to do my bidding all over the earth. You're going to place your imprint, your dominion upon it so that creation can flourish. And then we all fell, kicked out of the garden because we declared our independence as a human race. But that instinct is still there. I want to go somewhere with my life. You know, one, one pastor says, you know, we weren't made to go through life, the ebb and flow of life, like some spineless jellyfish carried along by the currents. We have to have something that gets us up in the morning. Made, we were made for that, something that animates us, that energizes us, that captures your life, that captures your imagination, that grabs hold of your heart, and that makes you want to study and learn more about it, a calling, a vision, a purpose that you'd give everything for, that you'd give your life for. You know, it's easy to waste a life on TikTok and Facebook and Grand Theft Auto version 732, and there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, though they can be addictive. Uh, but, but Jesus is saying that life is so much more than all of that. Think of, think of December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor, when, when hundreds of thousands of young American men lined up at recruitment office, offices. I knew people, when I first came to this church, there were men in this church who lied about their age in order to get into the army so that they could fight uh, because... Because they had something bigger, worth fighting for, something worth dying for, something worth risking their life for. They had a greater ambition. Think of all the Ukrainian men and women who did the same thing last February when Russia attacked. And they lined up and they were turning people away because it was too many they couldn't process. You say, Greg, we're in a church today because we are ambitious for God's kingdom. Well, maybe. 
there are all sorts of ways that, that people go to church. You know, you could, you could be here because you really want God to act powerfully in your life because he is what you want. He is your heart's desire. He is your savior. And you are trusting your life and your future to him and wanting to walk in his ways. Or you could be here this morning because you really want something in life and you think God might be able to get it. And you're right here because you want to use God to get that. And that, that other thing is your real ambition. Uh, you could do the religion thing. Uh, it's easy to fake it. Most folks won't know. Uh, the difference is you're driving down Lindell Boulevard, and uh, and and you know, somebody in the the right flag throws open their car door, and somebody in the left goes into the your lane, and you you try to get out of it, but you end up just totally getting rear-ended, and you sit there and you think, Oh my gosh, am I going to be okay? Is my car going to be okay? Is, is my insurance going to get canceled? What if the other driver doesn't have insurance? What if, you know, what, what could go wrong? And am I even going to be able to find a replacement car if this one's totaled? Because used cars cost what new cars used to cost. It's horrible. And your mind is just going in every which way, thinking of all the things that could go wrong. Imagine instead, you're driving down Lindell Boulevard, and you're going to get hit eventually if you drive down Lindell Boulevard enough. I mean, that, that is, a, it is a video game. It is insane. Uh, narrowest lanes on the planet. It's just crazy, but you're eventually going to get hit. What if when you get hit, you say, God, I wonder what you're doing. What's the opportunity here to glorify you, Lord, because I'm yours? You know, I wonder if that other driver that just hit me is freaking out, worried that they're going to lose their insurance, or maybe they, this isn't even their car, or maybe they're hurt. Maybe I should get out and check on them and, and make sure that they can get out and they're okay. And then, you know, let them know, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and can I pray for you? Because you're probably freaking out right now. And I just want to lay you before God. That's the difference. Same situation. One is a life built on the things of this world. The other is a life built on God's kingdom first, trusting that God will take care of everything else. What preoccupies your heart? Is it yourself or is it God? Two people might sit in the same pew, but might be living for very different things. Jesus says, seek my father's kingdom. Hear the repetition. I'm worried about my food, about my drink, about my body, how to feed me, clothe me, eat me, cool me, refresh me, enhance me, entertain me, improve me, because it's all about me. Notice the first word in the passage. Jesus says, therefore, he had been talking about living for wealth instead of living for God. And he's using now worry. What you worry about is a diagnostic of the soul because, you know, what you worry about tells you what you're really living for. Jesus says, don't worry about you. Life is more than that. Seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom. There's a 19th century Anglican bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, who wrote this about what he called a zealous man. Says a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. Now, he sees one thing. He cares about one thing. 
he lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases other people or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets the blame or whether he gets the praise, whether he gets honored or whether he gets shamed. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he is content. He feels that like a lamp, he was made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him on this earth. Such a one will always find a steer for his zeal. If he can't preach, if he can't work, he'll give money. He'll cry. He'll sigh. He'll pray. Yes, he is only a pauper on a perpetual bed of sickness. He will still make the wheels of sin around him drive heavily by continually interceding against it. This is what I mean, he writes, when I speak of zeal. Jesus says the pagan world runs after all the things of this life. But for my followers, he's saying, I want you to seek first my kingdom. That's my salvation, my rule, my, my will on earth. And all these things will be given to you as well. The story is told of a prominent British merchant being asked to come meet with Queen Elizabeth I. And she asked him to go on a journey as an envoy on her behalf halfway around the globe. And the man was very quiet and fidgeting. She inquired, what's your concern? And he confessed that he was very heavily engaged in running his business. And if he took six months to travel as an envoy to another country, he's not sure if his business would be able to make it. And the queen replied to him, you look after my business and I will look after yours. And as the queen of Great Britain and Ireland, she had the resources to make sure that his business was going to do fine. And Jesus is promising here that God himself is saying, if you look after my business, I will look after your business. Our anxiety, our worries, they show us what, are, what we're really living for. Uh, they, they're, they're diagnostic for showing us what our real ambition is in life. And then Jesus gives us a theology, a theology here that says that God is completely in control of everything. He says, consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have storerooms or barns, yet God feeds them. Amazing. I was looking, it was in Forest Park yesterday, watching some birds eating. And I was just amazed. It was like manna. Every day, God gives them new food, and they never have to store it up. It just, it just gives them more food today. God feeds them, he says. They don't, they don't just do it themselves. God feeds them, he says. Every bird, every meal, every day, the Lord is in control and making sure that each one gets what it needs. He says, consider how the lilies grow. They don't labor. They don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. 
That's how God clothes the grass of the field. The lilies don't pop up on their own. That's the secondary cause. The ultimate primary cause is God is the unmoved mover, continually maintaining the, the existence of the universe through his own will, through Jesus, the Bible tells us. And so God himself is the one making the lilies pop up in the grassy field. Jesus is drawing on a rich Hebrew theology. Psalm 135 says, It's the Lord who makes the clouds rise to the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. Even weather systems, you know, no, Greg, it's all about different water, you know, very, very different, you know, jet streams and all that. That's, that's secondary causes. Ultimately, behind all of that is a God without whom the universe would not continue to exist for three seconds were he to go to sleep. Daniel 2, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He, the Lord, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. You say, no, we do it ourselves. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's the invisible hand behind history. 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. You say, well, what about accidents? Psalm 16, or Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap. The dice are rolled. But it's every decision is from the Lord. You say, Greg, how can that be with all the evil that humans have done throughout history, all the pain, all the suffering? We're in a fallen world. It's not the world as God intended it in the beginning. Uh, we declared our independence and brought suffering and death on us all. And yet, you say, Greg, you don't understand. My life has been one of pure misery and suffering and just darkness. It looks like this. We've got a photo. Can we get that first photo? Um, okay, maybe we, we, don't, we don't have that first photo. Um, there it is. It's ugly. It's blotchy. It's dark. There's a glimmer of light in there, but not much. How could that possibly be anything good? How could God use that in any way, shape, or form? That is my life. And yet, if we go to the next picture, we zoom out, you realize it's a detail of a much bigger thing. And at the end of history, we don't see it now, barely now, but at the end of history, we will be able to look back and see that God did not waste even one ugly blotch not even one dark hue, not even one tear was wasted, that all of it was a part of a larger tapestry that would put on display the grace of God to fallen sinners like us and bring glory to God and salvation to us. Because God doesn't waste it. He is the one who is in charge. Jesus is saying he is in control. Georges Chirot, Grand Jacques, the canvas of history, a story centered ultimately in the Bible on Jesus. Genesis 50, 20. After Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery after trying to kill him, they, they ended up in jail in Egypt. People lied to him. They didn't follow through on, on promises. He was totally set up and, and, and slandered and, and eventually ended up the vizier of Egypt during the famine and saved a lot of people's lives. And then he confronts his brothers who did all this to him. And he says... You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Two intentions. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good to bring about a, a greater purpose in history. 
God is a character in the story, but he's also the story's author. You know, R.C. Sproul talks about the maverick molecule. You've, you've probably heard this from me. It's the butterfly effect gone wild. If there is one molecule somewhere in the cosmos, outside of God's sovereign rule, outside of his control, one maverick molecule, then you have no basis for any hope in this life or in God's words and promise to you. Because that one molecule could very well be the one nail that for want of the nail, the horseshoe was lost. And for, and for lack of that horseshoe, the horse was lost. And for lack of that horse, the rider was lost. And for lack of the rider, the battle was lost. And for lack of the battle, the war was lost. Yet Jesus says in his word that a bird cannot land, cannot fall to the ground without the will of my Father in heaven. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? You are yet not one of them is forgotten by God. God doesn't forget. He knows every bird, not just every species, every bird. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I heard a story once about the, a little girl in a train traveling out west across the Rockies. This would have been, you know, early 20th century and, uh, and as they were climbing that first, you know, that first set of mountains in Colorado or wherever it is, uh, you know, the little girl, she's getting worried because she sees these mountains. They're, they're, they're huge, and they have massive drop-offs. And, and as she's looking out the window, she's, she's crying, she's shaking. Her mom is, is trying to comfort her. Dad comes and sits next to her and holds her. And, and, and as they finally get to the top of the mountain and crest the hill, her, her eyes get huge, and her tears go away. And she starts laughing and shouting, and she points and says, Mama, Daddy, somebody went ahead of us building bridges. Because she couldn't see what was ahead. She was afraid. But once she saw that somebody had gone ahead building bridges, she knew she was safe. Friends, somebody has gone ahead of you building bridges. And it's Jesus, your Savior, your best friend. We worry, and our worry shows what we're really living for, our real ambition in life. And Jesus wants to be our ambition. God wants and promises he's going to take care of us because he's in complete control. And besides, remember... He's your dad. He's a good, good father. And you are loved. That's who you are. Jesus says your father knows what you need. Your father knows that you need these things. Not God. Not the man upstairs. Not, you know, the deity. Your father. Your dad. Knows what you need. In antiquity, adoption often in Rome was, was something that a, a wealthy uh, man would do if he had no heir. He would take often a slave, younger man, and adopt this adult slave as his son and transfer his title to his son, transfer his honor, his property, everything he has, his name, his, his reputation, his standing, perhaps his seat in the, in the imperial senate. Uh, he would also then take all of that young man's debts and liabilities on himself and pay for them. And when Jesus says that God has adopted you who believe him into his family, and that you are therefore 
children of a father, that's a father who has taken all your debts and all your liabilities and he paid for them on the cross so that you will never have to pay for them. They are paid in full, stamped. You've got the receipt right here in his word. And, and not only that, it means you have God as your inheritance. You know, you gain his name. That means that you're precious to him. He's your dad. Your father knows that you need them. How much more valuable are you, Jesus says, than birds? He says, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? If you notice your father, he'll never let you go. He'll never turn you away. Brian Chapel tells the account that on Sunday, August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport. 155 people on board were killed, and only one survived. It was a four-year-old little girl from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. News accounts say that when the rescuers found Cecilia, they didn't believe she was from the plane. They assumed that she had wandered off from one of the cars along the highway that had stopped to witness this scene of, of horror. And yet when they checked the ship's manifest, they realized that she did have a ticket and she had come on board. And in the midst of the flames and the devastation, they learned that her own mother, as the plane was crashing, had unstrapped her own safety belt as it's spinning down toward the earth, and she put herself over her daughter and embraced her and held her. And through the fire and the crash and the impact and the devastation, Cecilia was safe in the arms of a parent who loved her and was sacrificing her life willingly for her. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Not tragedy, not disaster, not the fall, not the flames that followed, not the height, nor the depth, nor the life, nor the death. Such is the love of our Savior for us. He left heaven. He lowered himself to us. He covered us with his sacrifice, his sacrifice of his own body in order to save us. You've got a dad. And that means that you're going, that he's going to be extravagant toward you. He says, consider the lilies of the field. That was actually a, the, an amone coronaria is the actual flower. The Hebrew word for it calls it a, a, a kala or a, a bride. Um, they were, they were flowers. They still are flowers. Grapefruit-sized blossoms that come in a half dozen different colors. It's a perennial. And they bloom a full six months every year from December through into the early summer. And if that's how God clothes grass by putting that kind of extravagant glory upon it, then how much more will he be extravagant to his own children? It's not Queen Elizabeth saying, you take care of my business, I'll take care of yours. It's your dad, your father, who loves you, who's got your back because he is your dad. You have a father who's crazy about you. He's in control of the universe. And he says, you worry about my business, and I'll worry about yours. These are the words of Jesus, who knew what it would cost in his own body on the cross to make sure that our future was secure. Master Sergeant 
Roddy Edmonds platoon landed in Nazi Germany in 1944. They were untested soldiers and they were taken captive during the Battle of the Bulge. On Christmas Day that year, Edmonds and the other soldiers uh, arrived at the concentration camp in Stalag, known as Bad Orb. It housed 25,000 soldiers at the time. Three days later, Edmund and the, the non-commissioned officers, the NCOs, were moved to Stalag 9A with 1,275 other soldiers. And as a master sergeant, he was the senior NCO among the men. On the prisoner's first day in the POW camp, the German intercom came to life in the American barracks and, and instructed that only Jewish prisoners of war were to fall out after morning roll call. At this point, the Nazis were already well on the way of their final solution to kill six million Jewish people in camps, including Auschwitz and Birkenau. And that plan now extended to, to prisoners of war, Jewish prisoners of war from allied armies. Edmund told his men, men, we are not going to do that. The Geneva Convention affords only name, rank, and serial number, and so that's what we're going to do. All of us are falling out. A CNN article mentions that Edmonds was a committed Christian. The next morning, all 1,275 soldiers stood at attention in front of their barracks. The commander of the camp was furious. The Nazis stormed up to Edmonds and shouted, All of you cannot be Jewish! He said, We are all Jews here. Standing next to Edmund was Paul Stern, a 19-year-old Jewish soldier who heard Edmund's words in the exchange with the base commander, we are all Jews here. I am commanding you to have your Jewish men step forward. Edmund reminded the commander of the Geneva Conventions, telling him that he was entitled only to his prisoners' name, ranks, and serial numbers. The commander then pulled out his gun. He pressed it into Edmund's forehead, and Stern recalls, you will have your Jewish men step forward, or I will shoot you on the spot. Stern remembers Edmund's reply. If you shoot, you'll have to kill all of us, and you'll have to stand for war crimes after we win this war. The major turned red. He was furious that a prisoner of war was challenging him, but he put his gun in his holster, and he walked away, and all the men went back to their barracks. Not one was lost, because their commanding officer was ready to die so that they could live. He was ready to die for every one of them. And he learned that from his commanding officer, Jesus, because that's what Jesus had done for him and for me and for all who will follow him and trust your future into his saving care. It's the same Jesus who now speaks to you and says, trust me. Seek first my saving kingdom and my Father and I. We love you and we have already secured a future for you. Let's pray.